Well, good morning. How are you guys? It's good to be with you this morning. Would you open your Bibles to Song of Solomon, chapter 2? Chapter 2. You know, uh, the people that are closest to you, you often make fun of, so I had to put some of Matthew's bloopers in that video for your entertainment and mine as well. It was great. I, uh, Matthew, I think, still holds the record for the most takes for video announcements. I think it was like 33 takes for something. Um, so anyways, we always make fun of him for that. And I had to share with you his Star Wars scream, because that was like when somebody dies in Star Wars, the, ah, you know? So anyway, man, it's good to be with you guys this morning. Um, I want to just say right out of the gate, we have some mature content in our sermon this morning. So I would recommend, if you've got little ones, probably Sunday school today, um, there is some sexual content in our text that is the nature of Song of Songs. So um, just fair warning, there's some things we're going to talk about today that uh, you probably don't want little ones to hear. So I'll leave that to your parental discretion. But it is good to be with you this morning. You know, as I started doing my studying for <coughs> this text, I, uh, I realized very quickly I was not alone in the camp of feeling very uncomfortable preparing to teach this to a large group of people. Um, it was like every sermon that I watched, it was like the introduction from the pastor was like, yeah, Song of Solomon. So here we are. Um, this is a weird book. And uh, it was like even my favorite preachers who I often will reference in my preparation and just kind of listen to their take on the text kind of had the same thing to say, just like, yeah, this is a little bit of a weird book. So I'm just going to put it out there in front of all of you. This is a weird book. In some regards, it's a little uncomfortable, and if you think it's uncomfortable, just imagine being up here talking to hundreds of people about it. So, but you know what? I will say this. Sex in our culture has been very much polluted and tainted by sin. Sex is not bad. Sex is good. Sex is designed by God. It is ordained by God. And when it is in its proper context, it is a beautiful, healthy, necessary, good thing for your relationship in a married relationship. But it is uncomfortable for us to navigate some of these texts because our view of sexual intimacy has been skewed and twisted by a polluted and corrupted sinful culture and by our own wickedness and our own hearts. Amen? Amen? And so we need to acknowledge that right out of the gate this morning that if we find ourselves, um, as one uh, commentator put it, feeling prudish, well, the Bible is not prudish in this area. The Bible doesn't hesitate to speak to sexual intimacy and even use sexually explicit language in this text because sex is not bad when it is in its right context. And what we are seeing in this second idyll, in this uh, passage of Songs of Songs or Songs of Solomon, is sex in its right context. And so it is holy and beautiful before the Lord when it is taken out of its proper context, it is not. Um, I have coffee up here with me today because we spent our night last night in the emergency room with little Miss Melody. She's good. She's on the way to church right now, I think. Um, she did what babies do best. My wife was leaving the house and she decided, now I want to poop. And uh, so if you've been a parent, you know exactly how that goes. You get them all dressed. My wife's out the door and then she starts going, and you're like, no, not now. Uh, and the car seat just has a way of just... The poop just goes everywhere. And if you're a parent, you're like, amen, brother. We know how that goes. Um, I did not realize how much poop I would touch becoming a father. I, I never knew how much poop a baby could make. So I'm talking about poop from the pulpit. And um, it's probably okay because 
It is the way God designed our bodies. But, you know, it is interesting because uh, Melody is at the stage now where she stands. Uh, she's not walking yet, but everything is like, how can I prop myself up on this thing, no matter how terribly unstable it may or may not be, to stand up on my feet? And uh, that's been her new thing. So I, I feel so bad. It was a horrible night. Um, and honestly... I had all sorts of weird things happen this week in my preparation, eating away at my time for preparation. I will chalk some of that up to just um, the realities of life. Things go wrong sometimes. However, I will not downplay the reality of spiritual warfare. I believe that the word that the Lord has for us this morning is important and necessary for healthy marriage. And I know that the enemy hates what we are doing here this morning. And so some of it is certainly spiritual warfare. So I put little Miss Melody in her high chair last night. There's a tray that locks onto the front of it. And it's always on there 99% of the time locked in. And I put her in, wasn't locked in, turned around to grab something. And she decided to try to stand up on the tray and she fell out of the high chair. As a parent, just the most gut-wrenching thing to see your little girl get hurt um, she had a little gash on her head and needed a few stitches. So all is well. She's good. She's all smiles this morning. But just the worst feeling as a parent. But as we were leaving, I grew up with all brothers. My wife's sitting in the back seat with our screaming child. And also, I'm at fault here. So uh, I'm trying to navigate these waters safely. Because <laughs> uh, I heard uh, somebody told me at first service, I think they said, or no, it was uh, Claudia Rizzi. She told me before service. She said, our, in our premarital counseling, somebody told us, your wife will never be more mad at you than when you are the reason their child is hurt. Uh, my wife wasn't actually that, but actually, Natalie was so gracious with me. I have an amazing bride, um, and we were just like, how do we take care of this? Let's get to the hospital, but as we were pulling out of the driveway, I looked in the rearview mirror, and looked at my wife, and I said, this is one of many trips I think we're going to be making like this. That's how it was for me and my brothers. We got hurt all the time. We're always breaking things or breaking each other. It's just the nature of children and especially boys. So anyway, Melody's okay, but I had a late night and did not get to finish my preparation the way I would have liked to, but in spite of that, God is faithful. He will speak this morning. Let's ask for him to uh, just lead this time. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the um, beautiful poetry and imagery that there is in this section. Would you give us open hearts and open minds this morning as we navigate your word? Would you give us wisdom and discernment on how we ought to operate in this area of sexuality and sex. And Lord, may we not um, shy away from it, but may we embrace it as your word uh, speaks to it very plainly. And may we be people who are willing to live in an obedient manner to honor you in this area, in a culture that has in so many ways polluted this. And we pray that we would be the exception and we would be the ones who represent the way that the Bible says this is supposed to be. And so we ask for your guiding and your leading through your Holy Spirit this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, let's read through our whole text this morning. I'm going to read out of the ESV, and um, we will come back. Why don't you stand for the reading of God's Word, stretch your legs a little bit, and uh, let's read this together. This is Song of Solomon, chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 8. The second idol goes from verse 8 through chapter 3, verse 5, so we will read that section now in its entirety. Many of your Bibles may say something like mine, the heading of this section, the bride adores her beloved. So this is the Shulamite woman speaking, and she says, The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains and bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands beyond our wall, or behind our wall, gazing through the windows and looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beloved one, and come away. 
For behold, the winter is past, and the rain is over and gone. Verse 12. The flowers appear on the earth, and the time of singing has come, and the, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig trees ripen its figs, and the vines are in blossom, and they give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my, my beautiful one, and come away. This is such a beautiful picture of a husband uh, and a wife uh, leaving and cleaving is the language here. Verse 14. O oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face and let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine. This is a very famous verse, often taken out of context. My beloved is mine and I am his. And then it says, He grazes among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. Chapter 3 begins the bride's dream. Uh, The first five verses we'll read here together. On my bed by night I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about the city. And I said, have you seen the one whom my soul loves, him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and I would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of, whom, of her who uh, conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem. These daughters of Jerusalem are primary um, audience for this, this word this morning. By the gazelles or the does of the field that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Let the word of God be written on our heart. You can have a seat. So we have an interesting text this morning. If you were to read that at face value, maybe you're newer to the Bible. If you were to read through this uh, and you'd probably be like me when I first read through it and be like, okay, I don't know what I just read. I have no idea what that means. I read about gazelles, doves, and deers and things, and I, uh, what? And that's okay. That, that's kind of how some of these Old Testament passages can be. But as we now dive in and look at context and um, the meaning behind some of these words in the original language and such, we will find some very deep, rich wisdom and beautiful poetic language in regards to sexual intimacy in the realm of marriage and how God has designed it to be. You know, technology has changed a lot, hasn't it? Uh, In just the last few decades, we've gone from, you know, uh, I remember when my parents got their first cell phone. How many of you had a cell phone in the 90s? Okay. And you remember you took that thing out and you were like, hello? (laughs) Right? And, uh, oh, no, you were like, hello? You had this giant antenna on there and it was just the weirdest thing. I remember my parents got a, uh, it was a Motorola blue phone and it, and it, um, I remember I was like, I think maybe eight when they got it. And I remember um, just being so fascinated with it. It had this little pull-out antenna, and it was bl- like royal blue. I think my dad picked those. Diehard Dodger fan, everything blue. And he, you opened it up, and there was this little tab that covered the keypad. And then you couldn't text yet. Texting wasn't a thing. It was just to make calls. And, and I remember in college, I had a friend. He had an old Mercedes-Benz. The AC sw- switched on with like a jerry-rigged light switch. 
<laughs> you'd, you'd reach under the dash and you'd flip a, like a physical light switch like on a wall. He had wired it up to work his AC fan. Um, and this old Mercedes had a phone, a car phone in it. Remember, remember the car phones? And it had a coily cord um, and, and it could connect and it was like, ooh, here's a car phone. You know, like you had a nice Mercedes Benz and like you'd literally like grab a thing the size of this book and be like, Hello? You know, and you see in like the old movies and stuff, the rich people had phones in their cars. Um, and just how much technology has changed. I can take a 4K video on this little tiny thing that fits in, the, in my pocket, in the palm of my hand. Um, it is just crazy how technology has changed. But I remember as a kid, my parents um, had an old home video camera. You guys had these. As, uh, you put the actual cassette tapes in there, and you're looking through this thing like, come here, you know, like the kids, filming the kids. And my parents had one of those. And I remember we have this particular home video. We love watching back these old home videos. They're hilarious <laughs> uh, just to see my brothers and I as like little kids and our interactions and stuff. And you forget how high your voice was as a child. You hear yourself talk, and you're like, oh, my gosh, like, my voice sounded like that? Jeez Louise. And so I remember this one particular video, though. We're outside. Um, this is probably in 1998. And my dad is wearing entirely too short of a pair of bike shorts. That was the style. They're like upper thigh. Like, what is, what's going on? Oh, they were royal blue. Uh, and uh, he's standing on a very precarious stool. And I think he has Nathan holding him. And he's like trying to staple Christmas lights to the front of the house. And there's little James, and James is the youngest, and he's taking clumps of soil from the garden bed in front of the house and throwing them on the concrete, right? <laughs> and so mom walks out, and she's like, here's the boys, you know, the narrating mom on the home video. They're hanging the Christmas lights. There's Michael. Michael, be careful, you know? And then <laughs> my dad's like, I'm fine, you know, barely reaching. And uh, so... I remember this video. James is taking these wads of dirt and throwing them. And James is our, our troubled child in the sense that he was the rebellious one. Like, James was the one, you tell him not to do it, he gonna do it. Like, that's just how he was. And so that's how he was wired. How many of you have a child like that? Oh, my daughter is going to be like that. We're already at the stage now. We're at my, my grandma's house. She's hanging out with great-grandma yesterday. And there's these phone cords hanging off the wall. And you say, Melody, no. And she goes, No. No, no, and you're like, no, and she's like, no, and you know, it's just like, oh, you're going to be, you're going to push the limits. Thank you, Lord. Oh, so James is throwing these wads of soil on the ground, and here comes mom. James, let's not do that, please. The, the patient tone is there, right, James? The, very gentle. Let's not do that. What does James do? <laughs> Dirt on the ground, Right? And uh, that happens a couple times, and then the video ends with like, all right, you know, and then the video's over, and you know James is getting spanked at that very moment. <laughs> video over. We have a lot of home videos that end like that, very abruptly, like, all right, you know, shaky camera, video ends, child in trouble. See, the thing about that soil, though, if I may draw an analogy, is that soil is beautiful in its proper place, isn't it? When you take soil and you put it in a garden bed with uh, beautiful lush flowers and there's moisture and sunlight and now flowers can, can flourish and grow and there's, there's life, it's life-giving in its proper place. But when you take that same soil and you go into your home and you have your beautiful white fur rug and you throw it on your white rug and your kids run in there with their muddy shoes and they wipe their shoes, 
all of a sudden that soil is no longer beautiful and life-giving. And in fact, because it's taken out of its proper context, it's now creating a mess and oftentimes permanent stains and damage. And sex is like soil in that sense. When it's in its proper place, when it's in a garden bed, it brings life. It, it allows things to flourish. It's beautiful. It's right. It's whole. But when sex is taken outside of its God-given context and place, it becomes messy and damaging, and it can be permanently damaging. And some of you, and many of you, I would argue, sitting in this room this morning are still processing and working through long-term damage from sexual misconduct in your past or even your recent past. Sex is good, but we are not. And we have taken something that God has created to be good when in its right place and we've polluted it and muddied it and ruined it because we've taken it outside of the ordinances in which God has said it is supposed to stay. And the word marriage has an undeniable implication that is the joining of one man and one woman. And did you know that in our state right now, there is the possibility for me to be put in prison or fined for making that statement from this stage. And I am fully aware of that. That if I am to stand up here in California and say that I believe that marriage is for one man and one woman, I can be put in jail. If somebody so feels led to, to press charges against me for hate speech. That is where we are at in our culture. And it doesn't so much make me angry as it makes me sad. Because you start to see how evident and obvious it is that when we take this idea outside of the way God has designed it, it immediately begins to cause hurt. And so as we navigate this text this morning, there are a couple things that we need bear in mind. Number one, this is an epitomization of perfect intimacy between a couple. Newsflash, you and I are never going to have perfect marriages. So some of you are going to be reading this in the entire time. You're going to have the temptation to look at your spouse and see, did you hear that? <laughs> did, you, did you hear that? Don't do that this morning. And then secondly, so number one, this is a, this is a perfect picture you need to realize that the guy who wrote this failed epically in the area of marriage and sexual intimacy and did things very much not according to the will of God. Solomon had a lot of wives. So what you're seeing is what many believe is a young Solomon writing about maybe his first love. And the intentions are starting off so good and noble but the lesson there for us right out of the gate is that any of us are susceptible to falling so far from where we once started. And so we need to be accountable. If you're married this morning and you are struggling, get counseling. What are you waiting for? If you love your spouse and you care about your spouse, do whatever it takes to make it right. You know, last night when Melody got hurt, there's been a lot of issues around the song Reckless Love. Um, I've watched interview upon interview with the author, Corey Osbury, about his intentions in writing it. He was not saying that God is reckless in the sense that it's a characteristic of God. 
Um, I understand both sides of this. I know that some people had issues with the, that verbiage being applied to God, but he wrote it as a father about his kids. And the example that he gives in the interview is, look, I wasn't writing the song to say God is reckless by nature. I was saying, and, and you guys, can I just say something on a separate note for a minute? Worship songs are poetic. Music is poetic. This is poetic in many instances, like in the Song of Songs. It's poetic language. There are times, and there is creative license, and when we are describing God, we are describing an indescribable God. So anything that we write about God to try to describe who he is is going to fall vastly short. Now, obviously, I am not condoning things that misrepresent God or are heretical. And we have opted not to really do reckless love just because, frankly, as a worship pastor, I don't want to deal with the issues it could cause. I think it's a pretty well-written song. I think it's a good song. But for a corporate setting, we just decide not to sing it because if it, if it would cause an issue for somebody, we would rather err on just not doing it. But I do think it's a pretty good song. And I understand that it's a good song because I understand the context and the author's intention behind the song. And Corey Osbury is saying, I was writing it thinking about my, my kids. And if my kids, and he gave the example, is if your child is out in the street and a car is coming, you will do whatever it takes to get to that child to save that child from being injured. And I, I kind of got a taste of that last night. This is the first really serious injury from little Melody. And I felt that way. I'm pretty calm under, you know, uh, stressful situations, but I felt like that angst and that hurt in my heart as a father looking at my daughter in pain. And as we read about the way that God desires for us to operate in this area, you must understand that one of the characteristics, characteristics of our Heavenly Father is just that, that He is your Heavenly Father. And so when He gives you guidance and commands in a certain area, He does not do so to hinder you, but to help you. The scripture says at one point, what father would give his child a snake when his son asked for, I believe, something to eat? As a father, any good father is looking out for the best intentions of his children. And so as you read about the way that sex is supposed to be, it is for your good and for the glory of God. Can you imagine for a moment if we lived in a culture where people were only willing to have sexual relations with a person whom they were also willing to raise a child with. We would almost automatically, in a single generation, remove sexually transmitted diseases, we would eliminate the need for abortions, and marriages would begin to skyrocket in their success rate. But instead, our culture has said, no, we want to do it how we want to do it. I'm going to follow every impulse and everything that feels good and just chase after that. You know, the science shows that there is a chemical in your brain called oxytocin, and it is released when you begin to feel that feeling of falling in love. How many of you remember the feeling of falling in love? Some of you are like, I remember 50 years ago, I, right? Well, that, that chemical is released, and there is actually a science behind it, and it's also the way that God, did you know science affirms the Bible? Crazy thing, right? Did you know that that 
that, talk, uh, that uh, chemical is released at such high levels, and that's the feeling you get of falling in love. Um, in fact, one of the common side effects from this chemical is loss of appetite. How many of you, when you first went on your first couple dates, you were so full of butterflies, you felt like you didn't even want to eat? That's a, there's a science behind that. That feeling and that chemical that's being released in your brain actually can cause loss of appetite. It's a part of the feeling of falling in love. And I would argue it's even a part of the way God has designed your body and brain to work. Did you know that 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 chemical is found in great quantities in chocolate? (laughs) And so if your marriage is a mess this morning, just go buy a bunch of chocolate. You both sit down and eat a bunch of chocolate and maybe you'll fall more in love. No, I'm just kidding. You could try it. Let me know how it goes. But I will tell you that there is even a science behind it and statistics have now shown. Hear this. They did a poll on marriage and statistics have shown that married couples have a better sex life than people who are not married. Isn't that crazy? I think the Bible says something about that. Did you know that when you do things the way God intends them to be, it's good? That's crazy. And yet we live in a world that will, will defy what the Word of God has to say over and over again. And may we not remove ourselves from that equation. We are disobedient often. And we wrestle and we fight against the way that God has said things ought to be. And so we need to fight for purity in our marriages and in our sexuality. Another interesting thing is that scientific studies have shown that 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 chemical begins to wear off over a period of about five years. So if you were looking at the science objectively, my wife and I are going on six years of marriage. Not a long time, but a good amount of time. We've been together now for six, going on six years. And I will tell you, I don't want to be with anybody else. I love my wife. She's the only one for me. And I appreciate that Solomon and the Shulamite woman in this text are unashamed to proclaim their love for each other. Natalie, if you don't know, you're the only one for me. I don't want anybody else. I'm so thankful for you. You're an incredible wife. And we need to affirm our spouses more. And I know that not everybody has the luxury of having a pulpit where they can say that. I'm not doing it for brownie points. I really mean it. My wife is incredible. And I'll just ask you a question this morning. To the men and to the women, when is the last time that you affirmed your spouse? When is the last time you looked him or her in the eyes and you said, I love you. I really love you. I don't want anybody else but you. We need to do that much more often. But the science shows, if you looked at it objectively, scientists say, well, according to this short study, you'd need to get remarried every five years to stay happy in a relationship. Some people do that. And I would argue they're some of the most unhappy people I've ever met because there's another side to the equation. There's another chemical that your body releases and the scientists that I was reading the study referred to it as there's two phases. You have an attraction phase and you have an attachment phase. And he said the attachment phase is much more meaningful and much more significant. And he said that Generally speaking, looking at the science, about a five-year period into a relationship that is relatively healthy, the attachment phase really begins to set in. And what he said was, this is a secular scientist doing this study, not looking at this from a biblical perspective, just objectively because science affirms the Bible, and saying, according to these scientific studies, if people would just fight a little harder to hold on to their marriages, they would end up being happier in the long run and having a healthy relationship crazy because God has already said it and we've tried it our own way 
And unfortunately, you guys, the statistics show that the divorce rate within the church is almost just as high as outside of the church. And can I just submit to you that that is a very sad reality. And so we need to get back to the godly principles and structure for marriage. And intimacy is a huge part of that. Intimacy, as Pastor Michael reiterated last week, is much more than just physical sex. In fact, um, many good counselors on marriage have said that sex starts far before you guys are ever in the bedroom together. And your intimacy is way more than just physical. Now, I want to just pause here for a moment before we start to really div- dig in here and say this. I understand that there are single people in this room this morning. There are people who are widows and widowers. There are people who are not yet married. I have not forgotten about you as I stand up here and teach this. I would encourage you to just be open to the Holy Spirit leading you this morning. Glean whatever wisdom you can. Apply this however you best can. And know that this whole message this morning and this this section is really about God's timing. So trust God's timing. When we do things in our own time, does it pan out very well? I can tell you from my experience, it does not work out so well. It usually is quite a disaster. And so, for the sake of a 20-minute introduction, let's get into verse 8. Yeah, my last name says it all. It says in verse 8, The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains and bounding over the hills. The idea here is that he is eagerly seeking her out. You know, we live in a society where men are very passive sometimes. I, I, I've done junior high ministry in the past, and sometimes I've talked to young men, and they'll tell me they're interested in a girl, and I'm like, well, you're 13, so let's just, let's just shut that down right now. Um, but th- it's just funny to hear them try to communicate, like, how it's going. I'm like, oh, okay, well, you know, how's it going? And they're like, well, I texted her. And I'm like, you texted her? Okay. Bold, bold move. <laughs> I remember when I asked my wife out, I talked to her. It's crazy. We live in a society where communication, and honestly, even COVID, uh, studies have shown the damage that it's done to kids and their ability to communicate things verbally. It's very sad um, what these shutdowns have caused. And I understand there was a time when we didn't know where this was. We do not need to open up the can of worms this morning. But I'm just saying that Regardless of how things were executed, there's undeniable damage that's happened to kids and learning to communicate and have healthy social activity. And so communication is huge. I'm taking a couple through premarital counseling right now, and my first session oftentimes when I do premarital counseling is is communication because I believe communication is one of the the key foundations, of course, Christ, but communication. And um, I just love in this this passage... uh, there's such a, an eagerness and an anticipation for each other. There's a, a strong desire for each other to be with each other, not just uh, intimately, but um, together in marriage and to be physically together in the sense that like they're together, you know? Uh, can I tell you that growing up in the church, oftentimes, and uh, sorry, but oftentimes older men in the church were not very good examples of how to talk about their bride. And Sometimes you talk to men about their bride and, and they're like, yeah, my wife wants me to do this and I can't believe I got to go home. You know, my wife, my wife. And I'm like, wow, that's awful. Like you, 
are you a slave? Like, what is happening right now? And so I, I would encourage you, if you have that type of disdain towards your spouse this morning, my gosh, would you repent of that this morning and start loving her or him the way you need to? And, and maybe, I know that there's a lot to this and there's complicated things in our relationships and things can spiral out of control. We can end up in a place in a relationship where we never thought we'd end up. And you can look back and reminisce on the past, but the reality is now. And so what do you need to adjust and work on and surrender to the Lord now, today, to be better and to honor him in your marriage? But there's an eagerness. You know, and there's also overtones here of the return of Christ. In Revelation 1-7, Jesus is going to come back for his bride, the church. And this is why marriage is sacred, because it is pointing to a divine reality that Jesus Christ loved and gave himself up for you and for me, his church, his bride. There's a beautiful song called You're Beautiful by Phil Wickham, and it says, when we arrive at eternity's shore, when death is just a memory and tears are no more, we'll enter in as what? As the wedding bells ring, and your bride will come together and we'll sing, you're beautiful. What a beautiful, uh, Phil Wickham just got a Dove Award for Best Worship Album of the Year. I think it's well-deserved for some of his most recent songs. And he's such a good songwriter. And um, the way he can communicate these eternal uh, realities in a beautiful and poetic way like that. But the day will come when the wedding bells will ring, if you will, and we will be reunited with Christ. And that's why God takes marriage seriously and has strict guidelines for marriage because it is meant to be a picture of him and his church. And God takes misrepresenting him pretty seriously. Just look at Moses. We're going through Exodus. It is so frustrating to read through Exodus. Moses is dealing with these people and you're like, I don't know how he's doing it. These people are so annoying. And then you look in the mirror and you're like, I'm an Israelite. I'm the one. And Moses is told to speak to the rock. And what does Moses do? If you know the passage, he says, I've done enough talking. And he smacks the rock. And the Lord says, you've misrepresented me. You will not enter the promised land. And you're, you read that passage if you studied Exodus, and you're like, what? He's done all this stuff for you, God. How could you tell him? But God takes representing him correctly, seriously. And so marriage is a representation of Christ and his church. So far be it from us this morning to misrepresent Christ and how we conduct ourselves in the midst of our marriages. Verse 9, my beloved is like a gazelle. This is just language of him being strong. She's attracted to him. Um, she's, she finds him handsome and um, he's agile and young. And some of you are reminiscing of the past right now of being agile and young. And um, I told first service that I know I'm not old. My goodness, I'm going to preface what I'm saying with I know I'm not old. You don't have to yell at me. You don't know anything. Just wait. <laughs> People get crazy about this. I know I'll be that old guy one day like, you don't even know what it is to hurt. Right? But I've been in some pretty serious car accidents and I have back problems because of it. And just the other day I was picking up Melody and I, I, I bent down and my knees made this sound. Have you ever experienced this? It was like... And I was like, oh my goodness. I played catcher a lot through high school, so they say it's so bad for your knees, that position to just be squatted all the time. And my knees and back have paid the price from years of sports. And I'm starting to feel it more. I go to the gym. I don't recover as quickly. I used to be able to eat whatever I wanted. I could never gain weight in high school. Now I look at a burrito and I'm like, how many calories is that? <laughs> okay, it's worth it. 
but she's attracted to him. She finds him handsome. And then it says in verse 9, Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. I would not recommend doing this if you are pursuing a young woman. Um, this, is not, this is not literal advice for you this morning, church. Please, you will get arrested if you do this. No, the picture here, though, is that he's longing and yearning for his bride. That's the picture. Um, it's poetic. Verse 10, my beloved speaks. I love that they, uh, she keeps referring to him as my beloved. What a beautiful way to refer to her husband. Speaks to me and says to me, arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. He invites her to come away with him. This is leave and cleave imagery. This is what the Bible talks about is supposed to happen. Now, in Southern California, leaving and cleaving is more challenging, isn't it? I ended up back with my parents after a year of marriage. That was fun. No, it wasn't that bad. My parents are great. But it's not great being married and living back with your parents because that's not really the way God designed it to be. And I understand the reality. Been there, done that. Uh, I hope I never have to go back with my parents. I have a great relationship with my parents, but I don't want to live with my parents. I'm almost 30 years old and I have a child. I don't, I don't want to live with my parents. And I don't think they want me to live with them. And that's okay. I'm okay with that. So this is leave and cleave imagery. Your, your bride becomes your first priority outside of your relationship with Jesus. That means that, oh, the holidays are coming and you all know, well, what about us? Your aunt from Virginia, who you don't even know is going to be in town, are you not going to make time for her? <laughs> right? And you're like, I don't even know Aunt Barbara. Like, what? No, I'm going to go spend time with my wife. We did the first Christmas. I remember we tried to split. It was Thanksgiving or something. And we tried to like split it amongst three houses we're driving all over California, and I'm like, I just want to eat some food. I'm not feeling thankful right now, right? I would recommend just pick a, pick a one or two houses. Three is too much. It's the max. Too much. Too much driving. My, my forerunner gets 10 miles per gallon. I'm not even kidding. 10 miles per gallon. How many of you have a lifted SUV? Forget it, dude. 33-inch tires. I, I pull out of my driveway, gallon of gas gone. <laughs> Insane. But it looks great. It's a lot of fun. I hope gas goes down, though. <laughs> Verse 11. For behold, the winter is past. Now, this is language uh, pointing. Again, this is a poem, the song, artistic language. This is pointing to springtime. Springtime often symbolizes new love and new beginnings and, and refreshment, right? So verse 11 says, For behold, the winter is past. You could say the waiting season is over. The rain is over and gone. Verse 12, The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. It's a beautiful picture of a new beginning. And this is what it should be like when you first get married. Um, and, and you experience that joy and that excitement. Uh, I remember, though, it, uh, one of the first nights, my wife and I got back from our honeymoon. And we were um, sitting in bed, just sitting there. And I, I, she looked at me, and she started tearing up. And then I started tearing up. And we had this reality of, like, I remember I looked at her, and I, uh, she said, it's just so weird that I'll never, like, live with my, my parents again. And I, I remember looking at Natalie and saying, like, it's so weird that, you know, same parents. And I said, and I'll never, like, be across the hall from my little brothers again to, like, chuck something at them in the middle of the night. <laughs> and, and, you know, there is this idea of leaving and cleaving, and you guys become one, and it's now your journey together. And that can be a weird time. But it's also so full of excitement, and that's the language here is that 
There's a sense of joy and anticipation. The spring has come. There's a new beginning. Verse 13, the fig trees ripen its figs and the vines are in blossom and they give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away with me. You know, um, scholars unanimously agree that what is happening here is in the context of marriage. The Bible would not affirm this relationship and the intimacy and the sexual intimacy in this relationship if it were to be outside of the context of marriage. So we know that they're married in this picture because they're there's obvious sexual overtones in our text. You know, uh, Solomon invites her to arise and to come away with him. You know, you can look at Proverbs chapter 5, uh, 18 as an example of this idea of leaving and cleaving, of becoming one, of going away together. Um, he was, again, completely transparent in his, his, in his intentions. Um, if you are not yet married or you are engaged or you are dating, Can I tell you that you need to have intentions out on the table and very clear right away, right away. Don't waste any time. Remember Natalie and I, one of our first dates, we went to Corky's and I got a breakfast burrito. Elijah Ryan and I share this. We have kindred spirits. So good. The burritos are the size of your face, um, just stuffed with eggs and cheese and all the good things. And um, if you really want to do the calorie killer, you can add country gravy in there and just, wow, don't do that. It's too much. Did it and had a stomachache. But I remember Natalie and I, we, we were eating. I got a breakfast burrito. And I was very forward with some questions with her, like right out of the gate. We had just started dating. And I remember her looking at me and being like, I did not come prepared to answer these questions today. Um, but I remember in hindsight, we were glad and we're thankful that we got some of those big things out of the way, out of the gate. And we need to be straightforward with somebody who we're considering spending the rest of our lives with. But then beyond that, the, the initial transparency... We need to be honest with each other in the midst of our relationships. We need to affirm each other. And so often marriages are hindered by lack of transparency and lack of communication and lack of healthy uh, communicative intimacy. And so if you are not healthy in your communication in your marriage, your marriage is probably not healthy. You guys must be talking. You must be. And this is paralleled in our relationship with the Lord. I told you a couple weeks ago, I heard a quote from um, an author. Oh, it was at the men's retreat I shared this. So good. Um, a, a biblical scholar was asked, I forget his name at the moment, what is more important, reading your Bible or prayer? And you know what he said in response? What's more important, breathing in or breathing out? Have you ever tried only breathing in? You will die. You must breathe out. And what he is saying is, Your relationship with the Lord is often knit together through devotion to his word and through time in prayer. How often do you pray for your marriage? How often do you pray for your spouse? You know, we love to go before the Lord and petition him for things we want. But what about making a healthy marriage a priority on our prayer list? We need to refocus and get back to things that are most important. You know, we love the idea of Jesus as our Savior. The world likes that idea often. You could take the gospel message to somebody, and if you started with this, hey, how do you feel about the fact that somebody died for your sins, and because of his shed blood and his sacrifice, you've been forgiven? Most people would be like, that sounds great. I like that. And then you say, oh, also, you need to repent of your sin, start living a holy life, and oh, also, he's the Lord of your life, not just your Savior. That's where we struggle isn't it? And it's easy to point our finger at the world and say, 
They don't want to surrender to the Lord. But we wrestle with that. We love the idea of Jesus as our Savior. But the idea of Jesus Christ as the Lord who rules and reigns over our life supremely, we, we don't like that idea as much in our sinful desires because there starts to become a clash. And so we must surrender even these aspects of our marriage to the Lord. Verse 14, Oh, my dove, I would not call my wife a dove. Um, not my forte. However, the picture that's being painted here is that a dove is beautiful, gentle. You know, you, you go to these, uh, sometimes it's at memorial services or, you know, you'll see the, the dove released out of the, the cage. It's such a beautiful bird. I'm always impressed how they get those birds to come back. I, I don't know how they do that. Uh, if anybody has any insight on that, I'd love to hear. How do you get a bird to come back? I, f- I figured the bird's gone. Like, you let him out of the cage. He's never coming back. But they get the birds back. I'm always amazed by that. That has nothing to do with our text, but Doves are crazy. And there's just poetic language here in verse 14. In the clefts of the rock and in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Maybe you need to tell your bride more often that her face is lovely. You know, our wives, men, if I can speak to you for a moment, need affirmation. We need affirmation too, but a lot less. We're we're usually okay without affirmation you know, we need it a little bit, but it's less important to the male, typically. That's not to say that men don't need affirmation, because we do. You know, my wife, her opinion means much more to me than some random person, right? So if I put together a song or, you know, that's usually my form of art or carpentry or something, and my wife likes it, I'm usually good. You know, so some random guy can be like, that stinks. And I'm like, well, I don't know, whatever. But if my wife approves of it and affirms it, That means a lot. It carries weight. In the same way, men, your words of affirmation mean much to your wife. So affirm her. Encourage her. Remind her that she is the only one for you. We need to be better at that as guys. How many of you have been in this spot? You think it, but you don't say it. Every man in the room will raise his hand and say, yeah, I've done that. (laughs) My wife will come down. We're going to go out. And I'm like, oh, wow, she looks great. And then I'm like, you know what actually comes out of my mouth, though? Are you ready now? <laughs> yeah. Dummy. Just say it. But for some reason, as men, there's this like block that can happen, and we can, we can fail to articulate how we really feel. And so that's something we need to be intentional with. And, and maybe it's uncomfortable for us at first, but make it so that it's not uncomfortable. Start making it a habit so that it just becomes normal in your marriage relationship. Amen? Verse 15. Now we get into some language that if you aren't a vineyard keeper, you'd probably be like, huh? Uh, Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyard. So she has a background of keeping the vineyard for her family, right? So she knows what this uh, language means. It's the idea that don't let anything get in the way or hinder or ruin what's about to happen. You know, if you were a vine keeper or I don't know what the, a, a vine farmer, I don't know what the language is for that. You don't count me, hold me to it, but you've got a vineyard. And this is also more evidence in verse 15 that they are already married because the word is that they are together in the sense of that it's our vineyard. There's the idea that they own it or possess it together. Um, and, and so she says, you know, don't let anything, uh, excuse me, he says, don't let anything um, get in the way. Don't, don't let the little foxes, these foxes would come in. And foxes are, you know, this is a good parallel here. Foxes are small animals, aren't they? They're so cute. Everything's foxes for my wife. She loves foxes. Our, our old cat was named Mr. Fox. He was a pretty cute cat. I don't even like cats. He was pretty cool. Um, 
He was like Garfield, though. He was like a big old fat cat, didn't do anything except sleep and eat, which is, I think, all cats do anyway, or claw you to death. That's the only other thing that they do. Um, but I uh, remember uh, foxes are everything. And the, the parallel I was reading in one of the commentaries, and I really like this, is foxes are small and they hide well. And they seem pretty insignificant. You see a fox in the vineyard, you don't think, oh, this little guy's going to destroy everything. But that's often how the problems in our marriages start, isn't it? They're small. Maybe they're even cute. Ah, it's not a big deal. It's fine. And we start to sweep things under the rug, and small things become big things. They become very big problems. And so if you have little issues in your marriage right now, would you address them before they get out of control? There may be some wisdom in that picture that's painted here. The idea that uh, is being expressed, though, is don't let anything ruin what the Lord is working in the midst of our intimate relationship and our marriage. Verse 16, my beloved is mine and I am his. And now there, there, is, uh, there is definitely sexual overtones in this. It, it says he grazes among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. This literally means let's make love all night long. That's what it means. And we get uncomfortable with that because you hear it in a Drake song and you're like, ew, gross. Yeah, amen. The other day we were in the mall and we're going into this place. My wife's looking for shoes. We have our daughter with us. And we, we did this thing, like we've been married long enough now. Like we, were, like we did the thing. We both looked at each other and we were like, we, saw, we heard the lyrics at the same time in the song. We were both like, oh my gosh, like, oh my gosh, that's, that's awful. What is he talking about? Let's get out of here. I'm not buying shoes from this store. And then my wife, the real mom, came out. Like, I was like, wow, you're a mom now. Like, <laughs> we're walking and pushing the store, and she's like, that's ridiculous. There's just some teenagers in there playing whatever music they want to play. They don't even care. They, they got little kids coming out. I'm going to go tell them. And I'm like, Natalie, no, 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 Natalie. <laughs> and the mom comes out, you know? But I was, I was annoyed too. I was like, I don't want my daughter hearing the F word. And I'm trying to go to a shoe store to buy a pair of shoes. You got to be kidding me. Our culture is so, the moral um, measure and, and compass has become so diminished that things that were once considered so profane and, and so not acceptable are now accepted. And we need to get back to the Bible, oh my gosh, do you know the statistics on when the Bible was in schools and was considered a, a, a required curriculum? Suicide rates, depression amongst children, way lower. We've removed the life-giving power of the Word of God from our world, and we are reaping the direct consequences of it. We need to get back to what the Word of God says. And so verse 17, there's this idea of intimate love. And then it says, turn my beloved like a gazelle or a young stag on the cleft mountains. Um, unanimously in the commentaries that I read, the mountains are breasts. So that's what that is. They're, you know, th this is like, yeah, it's uncomfortable. Yeah, you, you, do you want to stand up here and teach it? I, I don't want to talk about breasts. But here it is. And so this is the idea, is that even in Proverbs uh, it says, let the, the husband be satisfied in the breasts of his, his bride. And so there's an idea of garden imagery in the beginning of creation. Adam and Eve are what? They are what? They're naked and, come on church, they're naked and what? Unashamed. That's the way it's supposed to be. And some of you in your marriage relationships, there is no sexual intimacy. 
you are basically roommates at this point. And we laugh, but it's not funny. Because a huge part of your relationship has been neglected. Now, I understand there are situations where sexual intimacy becomes very limited because of physical limitations and stuff. That is not what I'm talking about. I am talking about when a couple has grown so far apart in their communication, in their verbal and physical intimacy that there is just none. And they basically just live together, but that's it. That is not God's design. And this is where the Bible gets into roles delegated for men and for women. And there are roles that are appropriate. You know, when we talk about women not supposed to be ordained into the pastorate, that is not suppressing women. The Bible is not saying we need to oppress and suppress women. They're not allowed to be pastors. That's not what the Bible is talking about. The Bible is saying there is a role for a man and there is a role for a woman. And the women, clearly in Scripture, I don't know why the church gets this so wrong, you guys, because it's very clear, and we could go there today, but we don't have time. But Paul says women are not to be shepherds over the flock. It's very black and white. If you've been told that it's up for debate, you've been lied to. The scripture is very plainly saying that women are not to be ordained into the pastorate. Do I hate women? Am I sexist? No. My wife is a lot smarter than me with most things. Probably more qualified to talk about some of this stuff than I am. But the Bible has made it clear that her role is not to be a shepherd over the church. An overseer is the word there. And so this, when, you, when people come at you and they start saying, oh, you're sexist and you're... Um, look, to be a complementarian means that your wife is in a complementary role. Women are in a complementary role and that you guys sustain and, and encourage and lift up each other when you are in the right roles that God has set and ordained. Just like in marriage, men are to be the authority over their household. I had a conversation with Pastor Michael who is wise, very wise. I, I do not take for granted uh, the fact that I have a father, I can, a, a literal earthly father I can go to and seek biblical wisdom. And I, I have many friends who are on staff at churches where women are ordained as pastors. And I sometimes struggle with that and how to reconcile that. And um, I, I, I went to my pops and I just said, hey, you know, how do you reconcile a church that has this situation where they're ordaining women? And my dad said, you know, it's not that they aren't a church. Because I said, is it a church? I mean, is the Holy Spirit blessing what they're doing? How do you, how do you, I'm genuinely asking, I don't know. And he was like, it's not that they're not a church or that the Holy Spirit is per se absent. But he said, just like in a marriage, and this is biblical wisdom. He said, just like in a marriage, when the man is not leading his household and the wife is not submitting, it's not that they don't have a marriage, it's that they're out of order. And many churches are out of order in this area. And for you this morning, let's now turn it into some application. Is your marriage out of order? Women, are, are, wives, are you allowing your husband to lead your family? Are you letting him do it? Or do you domineer and, and, and make demands and try to run the show and not give him that ability to, to operate in his God-given role? Men, are you trying to lead your family? Or are you being passive and lazy? Scripture says, woe to the lazy man, to the sluggard. Scripture also says in Proverbs, a little bit of sleep, a little bit of slumber, a little bit of folding of the hands, and poverty will come upon you. We need to be men who are intentional and stepping up and leading our families. And even in this area of intimacy, I believe that the man oftentimes 
has a leading role in how he leads his wife and does this in a way that is honoring to our Heavenly Father. Can I just tell you that I love the language here of, I have found the one in whom my, whom my soul loves. I love that language. You know why? Because when you start to view your spouse as a soul and not just a physical body that you're attracted to, it changes everything. Because when you start to see your spouse as a soul, a daughter of the highest king, I want to return my bride better than I found her. When I have to ultimately, at the end of my days, give her back to the Lord, I want to return her well-kept and taken care of and honored and respected. And so men, are you doing that? Women, are you doing that with your spouse? And so when we get into intimacy, if we want to have good intimacy, we need to have the foundation built there. And Christ needs to be the one who rules and reigns. We need to be operating according to his will. This is the last section for us. Chapter 3 begins and says... Now we are seeing a dream from the bride. On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. This is a dream. Let's keep that in mind as we read. So this is something she's dreaming about. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares, and I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I love that language. There it is. My soul loves. It's a soul connection. You know, our, 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 our society has whittled sex down um, to just a physical interaction and nothing else. So we have uh, therefore diminished the value of sex. I remember um, a pastor a long time ago on a book about this. Uh, it's actually Levi Lusco. I don't necessarily know everything Levi Lusco teaches, but I know this. I heard him in an interview talking about his book, Swipe Right, talking about our, our, our culture and how we've diminished the value of sex. And he said this, I thought this was a great example. He said, did you know, and I've shared this before, if you've heard it before, sorry, um, that the pineapple used to be like a rare thing. It was like a really big deal. In European culture, they found these tropical fruits called pineapples, right? So they start bringing them over on ships, and to have a pineapple was like a big deal. I love pineapple. Anybody love pineapple? It's like my favorite fruit. So sweet, although ours always go bad before we eat them. We just have terrible luck. Like, we forget it's there, and then when we go to cut into it, it's like moldy. I'm like, what is going on? I want to just eat the pineapple. Um, <laughs> you're like, what? So I remember... He's saying that these people would actually have pineapple viewing parties. Yeah, if you were wealthy and you got your hands on a pineapple, you wouldn't eat it. People would come over and be like, my Lord. Yeah, I don't know if those people I'll talk. <laughs> be like, look at this pineapple. You know, and they, <laughs> that's how people talk in that time, I guess. And people come over and they actually look at the pineapple. They wouldn't eat it. They just look at it. Now, when companies like Dole and others started processing pineapples and, and getting them into the, uh, getting them all around the European area, it became less and less common. You know what happens when something becomes more common? Its value is what? Yeah. Yeah, you know all about it because you're paying $7 a gallon for gas right now. It's crazy when you print more money, the value of money goes down. This principle is true in sex. When sex becomes overly accessible, its value is decreased. And so what happens is over time, our culture has worked its way to a place where sex is so accessible, uh, that feeling of very temporary satisfaction through means of pornography and masturbation has become so accessible and so normal and even encouraged by our culture that sex has been decreased as far as its value. It's just true. And so if we were to get back to the way that God wants us to operate in this area, it would, its value would begin to increase. It's something sacred and holy 
and it's for the married couple. And so she's having this dream of seeking out her husband. You know, uh, many ladies can relate to this feeling of not being able to sleep when their, their husband's not home, right? Uh, sometimes I go away for music or to travel, and my wife says she hates being home a- alone, you know? And uh, I think that's a sign of a healthy marriage. I think that it's good. You know, I don't like when she leaves, too. She's gone on a women's retreat or something, and I'm like, this is weird. Like, I got a king bed to myself. I don't even know what to do until the baby's awake. And now I have, somehow we got a bigger bed, and then somehow my two-foot-tall child, I end up with one foot of that king bed. I don't know how that's possible. I'm sleeping on my side. If I breathe wrong, I will fall off. (laughs) And so there's this desire to be together, and she's seeking him out. And it says in verse 4 that scarcely I had, had I passed them, and when I found him whom my soul loves, I held him and would not let him go. A picture of the vows there, that before God until death do his part. Until I brought him into my mother's house, and this is obviously sexual language of consummation, of being together, and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem. Now this is a target audience for this letter. Now she turns, if you will, to young women. So if you're a young single woman in the room this morning, hear this. And she says, and this could be applied to the men too, I, O daughters of Jerusalem, I adjure you by the gazelles or by the, uh, the does of the field that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Or you could say, don't have sex until it is the right time and the right time is God's time. You know, we don't have much time left, but I want to just say this. The issue of modesty is just something that I could not get away from as I was studying this. I have heard many young women and had conversations with young women who have told me that it is not their responsibility that if a man lusts after them, that's on the man. Now, to a certain degree, that is true. Men, we need to have covenant eyes. We need to guard our eyes and we need to, we need to be seeking the Lord and not looking on women and, and you know, Googling after women and, and we're like infatuated with women. And so men are visual creatures. And so they start to get easily swept up into what they're looking at. And so we need to guard our eyes. That is very true and there's a responsibility on men. But can I just say, I have a wife and we'll go shopping and sometimes she'll be like, she takes a shirt and it's hanging on the rack still. You've experienced this. And she's like, this is so cute. And then she takes it off the rack, and I'm like, where's the other half of it? (laughs) Because, and I saw a meme the other day, and it said, just FYI to all the major retailers, there's still a whole generation of women that would prefer the other half of the shirt. (laughs) Can I just be very honest with you guys this morning? As a man standing before you, men are visual creatures. When a woman is walking around, and there's cleavage, when the midsection is hanging out, when the shorts are too short, you are responsible to a certain degree for how you dress. And it is not fair or, or biblical to just say, I can wear whatever I want and if a man lusts after me, that's his problem. No. Because the Christ-like Christian behavior would say, I will prefer the people around me. And far be it from me to stumble anybody into sin. Now, this can obviously get taken to an extreme. And we see that in different cultures where women are not allowed to show any part of their body. That's not what I'm talking about. But modesty is important. And it is an attribute of a young, godly woman. 
Men, when you are dating someone, if they are regularly showing a lot of skin and unashamed to show off their body, you need to ask the question, do I want other men looking at my potentially future wife's body like that and having that view? I don't even want to go to the beach a lot of times anymore with my wife because I I look in every direction. I'm like, oh, wow, okay, hello. (laughs) It is so inappropriate, the things that are being worn. And women are basically in their underwear in public. And how we've gotten to this point, I can't really understand it, but I can tell you this. If we got back to the way that God defined things, we would be in a much better place. Men, have covenant eyes. Guard your eyes and do not look on women with lust. Jesus himself said, if you look on a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Women, dressed in a way that would honor your heavenly father and would save your body and your breasts and your rear and the things that God has created for intimacy for your husband. You don't need anybody else seeing that stuff. Please, for the sake of honoring God and for the sake of your husband and to the husbands, if you are a person who's encouraged your bride to dress that way, you need to reassess, buddy. You need to reassess where your priorities are at. That's a weird subject to address. I'm sorry, but I think it needs to be said. Well, praise the Lord. You know, as we wrap up today, and Dan, you guys can come out. I know that this is a difficult text. I know that some of you in this room have struggling marriages right now. Some of you no longer have a marriage. You've been through a divorce. Some of you have lost your spouse Can I just encourage you that there is hope in Jesus? And I will say this, that if you've made mistakes in this area, join the club. Unfortunately, statistics show that even in the church, most couples fail in this area. The defining thing, though, is that we choose not to continue sinning. Turn to John chapter 8 as we close, and I'll just read this quickly. This is such an amazing story in the New Testament passages. John chapter 8, I'm going to start reading it for the sake of time, says this. But when Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning, he came again to the temple. And all the people came to him and sat down, and, and, and he taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Many scholars believe this was a setup, that they set this woman up for failure. It's an awful scene. And placing her in the midst, they throw her into the public square, humiliating her in front of everybody, probably barely clothed because she was just caught in this act, a humiliating situation for this young woman. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery. Now in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They said this to test Jesus, that they might somehow catch him and bring some charge against him. Jesus bent down and started writing with his finger on the ground. We don't know what Jesus wrote. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, I just love this story. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard what he had said, they went away one by one beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman, standing before him. Probably her head sunk to the ground, 
ashamed and embarrassed, probably thinking she's about to die. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Or one translation says, Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You know, all of us have made mistakes and we've done things we regret. That passage is one of my favorite accounts in all of Scripture because it's our story. It's your story. You were dead in your sin. And your accusers were ready to throw those stones. But Jesus Christ stepped in and said, where are your accusers? They don't condemn you and neither do I. Go and sin no more is the part of the story we cannot forget. We are now called to live a life of holiness in light of the forgiveness that's been poured out upon us. And so if you're struggling in this area, if it's pornography, if it's adultery in some form, if your marriage is lacking the intimacy that it needs, you need to get help and you need to do it today. Stop putting it off. Stop making excuses and make things right. Because when your sex life is healthy and is biblical in your marriage, God uses it to unify you and your spouse in a unique and beautiful way. But there are foundational things that must be in the right place first. So Father, help us to do that. Thank you for the time that we've had this morning in your word. Thank you that even in these texts where at face value we might read through them and in our finite human brains wonder how we could apply this to our life. Lord, there's so much rich wisdom. Thank you for your forgiveness that's been poured out on us. And if we've fallen short in this area, may we accept that forgiveness. May we receive it as a free gift and then walk in obedience and desire to honor you. I pray for marriages in this room this morning, Father, that are hurting, that are broken that you would begin restoration. If there are men and women sitting in this room who can hardly stand to even be in the same room as their spouse, I pray for unity. I pray for forgiveness. I pray against the enemy doing his work of division and stirring up bitterness in our hearts. Today can be a day of healing, but we need to surrender our marriages to you. We need to surrender the things that we're struggling with to you however it may apply to us. I want to pray for specifically other young couples. Father, I want to pray for young marriages that you would sustain them, that you would strengthen them, that they would be an example to the next generation that is so also oh, confused about sexuality and that there would be many young men and women who would stand on biblical principles and say, no, this is what God has said and so we will stand by it. And may their marriages be a beam of light into a dark world. I pray for dating couples here this morning who are getting to know each other still and courting each other and considering marriage in their future, that you'd give them wisdom and discernment and that you would keep them pure. And if they've already failed, that you would begin to change their hearts and convict them, Lord, so that they would begin to honor you in this area of purity. And that that much more, that delayed gratification of their wedding night would be so beautiful and sacred because they did it the right way. Thank you, Lord, for how you bless us and you love us. And we, we bless you back now, Lord, this morning. We are listening. We want to hear every word that you speak in Jesus' name. Amen.